welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. I'm your host, Abraham J. Williamson, and we're on site in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in Sovereign Sound Studio. Thank you very much for having us. My childhood friend, actually, DB Deshaun Bennett, is the CEO of Sovereign Sound and has invited us here to record. Just got a tour. It is amazing. If you're in Atlanta, check it out for sure. Speaking of Atlanta, we are with Alexis Doolin, who is going to talk about a number of hats that she wears. And I got to say as well, We've had a number of Morehouse men on the podcast, so to have a film assistant here is going to be awesome, and we want to get into it more. So let's start kind of from the beginning, your origin, which is you when you were kind of growing up, your childhood self. You brought your mother with you today, who was walking around on the tour. Talk to us about younger you and whether younger you would be friends with you today. So younger me was... Very much so into being excellent, being perfect. Um, I was a straight A student. I never missed a day of class. Um, My parents expected a lot of me. So that's kind of how I treated myself. Always wanted to do really well. I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. So everybody worked really hard, worked long hours. And I found myself in my first job working for my grandfather at 12 in his restaurant. That's when I first realized that my work ethic could take me farther than anything in life. And if I could say something to my younger self or if I would be friends with my younger self, I would be. But I would take some advice that my grandfather gave me a while ago, which was you can work really hard, but make sure that you also learn how to talk to people and socialize. And that I'd I'd say I'd be friends with myself to tell myself that and to not be so hard on myself about how, about having that perfect work ethic. It's a good balance. That is really interesting. And it comes up a lot where there's, um, you know, a sense of perfectionism that people want to have that maybe, you know, develops, I was going to say mature, but just like transforms over time into a standard of excellence and maybe forgiving yourself. For you, when you were younger, when you were, you know, with your grandparents growing up in an entrepreneurial home, did you feel like you were like the other kids? Did you view yourself as different? When did you start to come into realizing that maybe not everybody grew up that way? I think I realized it when I was in sixth grade because my dad got a contract with the state to serve school lunches to all of the charter schools in Los Angeles. And one of the charter schools was a school that I was going to. And so one day I'm going out to lunch and they're saying, Alexis, your lunch is right here. This is a special lunch that they made for you at the restaurant, which was down the street from my middle school. And everyone was like, your dad is making the school lunches for us? That's really odd. And that was the first time that I realized that I was very different from everyone else. And I think even though my dad had a very famous Sunday brunch, I would go to Sunday brunch after church with my friends. So it was just like something I'm doing with my friends. But it wasn't until that moment where I was in middle school and my dad had a contract with the state of California to serve school lunches that my life might've been a little bit different 
than others. That is super cool. You brought back memories of me because I also ate school lunch. I never thought like who is actually providing this. Good to know that if I was in California, it would have been you and the Dillon family. So that's cool. Now let's get into tech because you grew up in a, it seems like a food business family or a family food business. Uh, but now you're in technology. When did you get that exposure and decide that that was something you wanted to explore more? Talk about kind of the earliest times where you started touching technology innovation and entered this whole new world. After I graduated from college, I worked at Accenture for several years and I worked on a lot of software implementation projects. And I was at this point in my career where I wanted to try something new. And my brother actually went to Howard University and he was a computer science major, math minor, and he was an engineer by trade. And I had this opportunity to work at Slack and it was a young company, you know, Accenture had been around for decades. And I was like, do you think I should go to Slack? Um, this is going to be my first time working at a small company. What do you think? And my brother was also a founder at the time. He and his co-founder were using Slack. And he was like, you should definitely go for it. It's a great company. I love using the tool. Take the risk and you'll really be exposed to so much more of tech because what you're doing is like software implementation, but the software that you're using has been around for decades. This is brand new technology. And once you go to Slack, you'll see a whole different side of the way people are working in this day and age. And once I went to Slack and I one saw how people at Slack were using Slack and how it was transforming the way people were working, I realized that there was so much more to explore in tech and innovation by taking that risk and and choosing to go that route. I see. So you saw it as an opportunity to build on the big corporate work in this tech company. So was the role different for you? You don't have to get into the mm -hmm. details, but if I am in a management consulting role or a mm -hmm. big law firm or on Wall Street or something like that, what do I need to know before I make the leap to a big tech company like Slack? Depending on where you go, a lot of the role is very similar. So if you're in like a customer success or a services type role. What is customer success, by the way? Because that is a new, and people <laughs> say that's a good foray into mm -hmm. tech if you don't have a developer background. So mm -hmm. what is customer success? And then keep going with your story. So customer success is essentially, as an organization, you're working to make sure the customer is getting the most value out of the software product. So this has been a, a team or department in software as a service, so SaaS, that allows people to really understand the value of the product, understand the product roadmap, and really make sure that they're getting a return on their investment. Once the customer comes into the product or they have the software rolled out at their company, you work with them to create a roadmap of okay, you're here now, but how can we get all of your users to get to a certain level of maturity? And how can we continue to build on your use cases to make sure that we're continuing to add value through this tool that you purchase from us? They work with several members of other teams. Also, if there's any issues or any concerns um, and make sure that there's ultimately a great customer experience. That makes sense. So you start off big consulting firm, make the foray into big tech on the encouragement of your big brother. Also shout out to Howard. Love that <laughs> as well. And then you decided that you wanted to move again to the investor side. So talk mm -hmm. about how you were able to take that experience and leverage it into the investor side. How did you do that? Maybe the programs or your approach, your thinking, just walk us through how you go from 
you know, big tech to investor side? I was on Instagram one day, as we all are, and I saw one of my friends who graduated from this HBCU VC fellowship. At the time, Slack had had gone public maybe a few months before I joined. And I was like, this company is still very young. How did they go public? They grew really quickly. How are we making the X amount of dollars at uh, in this short amount of time? And the combination of asking myself all these questions and then seeing her post her graduation photo from the fellowship, I reached out to her and I said, hey, like, what is HBCUVC and what was your experience like? I've been learning a lot about VC and investing in startups from working at Slack, and I'd love to figure out how I can learn a little bit more. So I met up with her in LA at Hilltop, and she explained her experience uh, in the fellowship. She talked a little bit about venture capital at a very high level. And then I said, I think I want to apply. This was during the pandemic. So obviously, there was a little bit of a slowdown. But I decided that I wanted to do something that was going to allow me to empower founders who looked like me to be able to have the same level of success as the founders of someone, something like Slack or Uber or, I don't know, DoorDash. Because as I looked around, most of the founders or most of the big tech companies were founded by people who did not look like me. HBCU VC was the first introduction for me to the industry, and it was my first thing I applied to that would give me access to the information I needed to decide if I wanted to switch into the industry. I see. So what did you learn? Because HBCU VC, a number of folks have come through that program and Mm -hmm. and nothing but great things to say. In fact, our first episode was with one of an early alum of HBCU VC. And it seems like they really do back up what they say, which is they are going to get you in. And you were able to join with a pretty historic Mm -hmm. uh, VC after you came out. So Mm -hmm. talk about maybe what you learned. And then I want you to talk about Goody Nation. I applied and I got in. It was one of the largest classes. And we had an intro session where we we got introduced to everyone in the program We met our investor in residence, Shane Kelly, and some of the leadership team. And then each week we went through a curriculum. So we went through like an online learning platform where we learned venture capital fundamentals. And each week we would have an opportunity to meet with different partners from pretty prominent funds across the nation, talking about different types of funds that exist. I was particularly drawn to folks within like social impact and folks who are interested in investing in underrepresented founders and women founders. So learning a little bit about that and the challenges that they faced. After that, we had an opportunity to apply to participate in the summer internship program. I interviewed with three or four funds and I got selected to go to Foundry Group. And as many people know, uh, Foundry Group was founded by Brad Feld um, and he's written several books about venture capital. He is one of the co-founders of Techstars. So that was really exciting. And I didn't really know that until I started gearing up to go and I was doing my research and I was like, wow, he is probably like the godfather of venture capital. During my internship, I had an opportunity to work with uh, two women investors on their team. And I would say the one thing that I really loved about Foundry Group is that 
they had transitioned a while back to become a fund of funds, and they invest in a lot of emerging fund managers of color. So Concrete Rose, Slauson & Co., and many others. And these are all venture capitalists that I look up to because they look like me, and they had a they have a vested interest in seeing emerging fund managers of color do well. And Seth Levine, who I worked very closely with, who's also a partner there, wrote a book about how the entrepreneurship landscape is changing in America to reflect more of the population. So more founders who are building technology companies are coming from diverse backgrounds. So we need to change the way we're thinking as venture capitalists. After that, uh, after the internship, I did a, a little work with a few other organizations And I had an opportunity to apply for the Goody Nation Fellowship, and I became an investor relations fellow after several interviews. And I actually found out at Afrotech, which is very ironic. (laughs) And I can talk a little bit more about Goody Nation as well. Would love to because I haven't met Joey, but I hear like just an awesome guy in terms of what he's promoting. And I think there's sort of uh, multiple approaches to you know, quote unquote, democratizing VC. And what I really like about what I see at least him post is that he is looking at founders more broadly Mm -hmm. and more generally, not just a particular type of founder. And he really sees the, uh, what do they call it? Like technical building or the skills workshop, the Mm -hmm. the resources say, hey, we're going to give you what you need. You're already a good entrepreneur. You just haven't been exposed to these other things. So talk about your experience there. And we would love to know more about Goody Nation because I believe this is the first time anyone has really been on the inside being able to talk about it. People have mentioned it, though, Mm -hmm. like I said, in all positive ways. So say whatever you like. Goody Nation is an amazing organization, and I've really been grateful to to have been selected to serve as an investor relations fellow. We want to build a community where we have a collective of people who have the resources to help our founders succeed. Investors who are interested in investing, obviously, in the companies in our portfolio, bringing in founders who have participated in some of the top accelerator programs across the nation, doing investor readiness sessions. So our founders are actually ready for warm introductions to investors. Um, But really, we are connectors. And that's what we are really doing. And we're doing everything that we can to connect founders to the people that can help them with any issue or problem that they're facing or to support them in any area of growth that they're looking to solve for. One of the things that I love to do, and I'm still getting better at that, is working with founders and working with the people in Goody Nation to see how I can provide the best level of support to make sure that everyone succeeds. I've had an opportunity to talk to Joey one-on-one, and he is very motivated to make sure that our founders, capital is one thing. But social capital is also extremely important. And a lot of us who have great ideas, we are not connected to the right people who can not only give us funding, but give us access to any resource that we would need to fill any gaps in our companies. And I reflect back on the pandemic and my own family and my dad was telling me about how 
difficult it was to survive as a restaurant where you're looking to have people come into your restaurant to get you revenue, right? One of the main reasons why a lot of the restaurants were able to survive is because there was a council member who was advocating for funding and for programs for them to help feed the community of people who could not leave their house because they were vulnerable. And they were giving funding to be able to provide food to these people. And this is an example of a program or an opportunity for someone who has an access to a resource to be able to give founders and entrepreneurs an opportunity to grow and stay in business. And as I think about that example of this council member giving my dad and other restaurants in the community an opportunity to get funding to provide food for the elderly or or Los Angeles um, residents, this is the same thing that I'm doing in venture capital. I'm that person who is going to pull in those resources and give them to the founder so that they are able to stay in business or grow their business in the way that they need. And I think that's kind of what we just talked about with your friend. I was just going to say, you were showing off your skills earlier in here with the, with the CEO about yeah. uh, some of the questions. So take us yeah. through some of your sessions, not obviously anything specific, but what I'm hearing is actually two roles that you play on mm-hmm. the investor analyst and deployment side. You're scrutinizing businesses with an eye toward whether they're investable or not. Mm-hmm. And then in your role as a mentor, you're scrutinizing businesses in a different way and hoping to fill those gaps and shore them up. Uh, Do you see any correlation between the two? Like, what are the things that you're seeing that people just don't have? I mean, there are, I don't want to call them superficial things because they're very real, but I see them a lot, which is maybe less uh, technical talent on the team than in, you know, mainstream or Mm -hmm. traditionally funded founders. You may see like difficulty marketing, which we were talking about kind of earlier, but if you were to peel back the layer, what are you seeing that you're really kind of encouraging people to get right that you see lacking a lot of time through no fault of their own necessarily? Yeah, that's a great question. Take the time to do a little bit more research on some examples of a good pitch deck. I also find that when you start to ask real questions about the business that founders cannot answer. And it's really important that you're able to answer questions. I'm sorry. Why? Like you just hit on something <laughs> that's huge. Like, why do you think that is? And it's my big brother. He's always giving me advice. And mm-hmm. he's like, if you ask somebody why three times, most people are going to stop before you get to that third. And mm-hmm. it's just going to be silence there for a minute. Is that what you're seeing? Like, what is it? And are you helping people to realize that and actually make a difference? Yes, that's exactly it. Because if I ask you, why do you think someone is going to buy your nail polish, right? And you say, oh, because it's cute. And I say, but why do you think someone's really going to buy your nail polish? And they're like, well, you know, because, you know, I think you have a cool brand. And it's like, no, but why do you really think someone is going to, why would I want to buy your nail polish? You need to be able to explain what your competitive advantage is. That is, that is, that is plain and simple. What is your competitive advantage, right? And I think there needs to be a little bit more coaching on some of these questions and how to answer them. So one thing that I find within our community is that we are working on building businesses that are solving critical problems in our communities. And it is always amazing 
to see founders who are solving critical problems in our communities through technology, because it is a problem that only you understand. And so, especially when it's that case, if someone asks you, why should I invest in your business? It is because you understand this problem more than anybody else. And you understand that you are the best person to solve this problem because you understand the intricacies of the problem that they would not be able to understand. And that is something that in our community we we miss because we know our buying power. We understand some of the critical things that we need in our communities. And there are some people who are doing it right, but more of us need guidance on how we can make sure that we can articulate that so that it makes someone want to be pulled in to invest. And I learned this from my dad and my grandfather. There are going to be times when you face adversity, but you have to believe in yourself in a way that nobody else, and some may call it ego or arrogance, but as I see some of the challenges that people face, If you don't believe in yourself more than anybody else, because this is your company, you're building this business, doesn't matter who you hire, you're you're always going to care more than anybody else who you hire, unless you have a co-founder, right? And I see a lot of us who maybe we've had some challenges and when we finally get to do a pitch review, it almost feels like you don't even believe in 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 your company yourself. You just need someone who can sit with you enough to give you the pointers to be able to take your company in the right direction. And that is the purpose of some of the things that I do personally, because I also do some, do meet with some founders on the side, answer some questions. And I always believe that you have to be your number one supporter because this journey is really hard and you have to be able to continue to move forward and stick to the path, you know, be flexible but understand that you are the only one who can drive this. So I know I kind of went off on it. You're not off. We're going to stay on this Audubon for a little bit longer because this is, I think, super valuable to people who are listening because I also review pitch decks too, Mm -hmm. you know, as a lawyer, I'm like maybe the second or third person. They're (laughs) like, Hey, I just want your thoughts on this. And I see some of the same things. A lot of the comments are, let's go a level or two deeper on this. Mm -hmm. And for competitive advantage specifically, Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people are tempted to say, price or best broadly speaking and one of the podcasts that is on this week is with jonathan mentor who's also a tech stars mentor a success man he says something that i've been thinking about ever since i heard it which is that a lot of people focus on product and sales but a lot of customers and even investors maybe buy based on your why or Mm -hmm. like your purpose on Mm -hmm. what makes you unique. And I think I saw Gabrielle Union talking about this as well. So when people have a competitive advantage, what are some recommendations that you might give to them or examples? Even when I think about, you know, this podcast, both from a listener standpoint and even from the guests Mm -hmm. being able to go deeper in some of these longer interviews, we've been on for almost half an hour. We're not kind of rushing through it to be able to actually get to know people over time and have them to come on and then hopefully ask them questions they haven't been asked before. I think it's very helpful for people who are listening and then to slow down because Mm -hmm. not everybody knows the jargon, right? To actually have people who feel like they can learn as they're listening. So anyway, the competitive advantage. Could you just talk a little bit more about repeated advice that you're giving? Yes. And I will tell you something that I told someone just yesterday. I also add that I'm an entrepreneur in residence with 
Chani Ventures. It is an, a free accelerator based in Mexico City. So it is for women of color. So we have Mexican and Black women in this accelerator, and they're about to do their demo day soon. I was on a call with a few of the founders yesterday, and they kept asking me, like, what do I say about competitive advantage? And I said, who are your competitors, right? Who are the people who are selling the same product, who are selling the same technology, and kind of look at the way that they talk about their product, right? Think about if you are a reseller, what is the thing that StockX says as a reseller that makes people continue to come back and use them as their primary source of shoes, right? It is the fact that I know that the shoes are authentic and I know that they go through this rigorous process to make sure that these shoes are really Jordan ones, right? And as a customer, that is the reason why I continue to buy from StockX. As a customer, what is the thing that is going to make me want to continue to come back to you? But first, let's take a step back, right? If your customers only care about price, right? They only care about the fact that you're selling jewelry that's $5 and your source is somebody in China, but all the customers that you're focusing on only care about price. Are they going to care that you source your product from China? Probably not because they care about price. Your customers care about sustainability. If they care about sustainability, they may want to pay a little bit more to know that the product is coming from a jewelry designer in the community who's buying all these products from renewable energy sources or recycled materials, I should say. You understand the customer base that you are trying to tap into and you understand what is important to them. You can also formulate your why that way. So it it depends also on the industry, right? So your why is I have all of these people who are looking for jewelry made from recycled materials. They're willing to pay $20. My why is I want to be able to service this group of people. And my competitive advantage is that I can show you exactly where I get these recycled materials. And this is something I explained to a founder yesterday. But your competitive advantage really needs to be rooted in the why, which we just talked about. And if it is a personal why of I am trying to create a technology that allows people to go into an app and create a grocery list based on allergies that they have, and they can go in the app, click a button, and it gives them all the recommendations, which would be great for me because I have a lot of allergies. And your why is because you have a lot of allergies. Those are the things that people care about. And so as an investor, I know that you're really invested in this because this is something that actually impacts you too. So I think about Partake Foods, for example. Her why is because her daughter had a lot of allergies and they could not find cookies or snacks that were allergen-free that actually tasted good. That's an easy why, right? When I think about my why of why I'm doing what I'm doing, it's because I see a disparity in founders getting the resources they need to be able to get funding for whatever they're looking for. And that's why I'm going to continue doing this on a day-to-day basis. And for an investor, if your why is that compelling, they know that you're not going to just abandon the company because that's really important too. If I invest $5 million into your company, are you going to stick this out for the long haul? And that's why your why and your competitive advantage is so important. That's super powerful. And it seems like 
investor, operator, customer, hopefully that all lines up. Their whys are consistent, which is why they decide to develop a relationship and come together. Can we talk a little bit about that customer feedback loop or the conversation one has with their customers? Because uh, not everyone, but you can have a tendency to shift the focus from the customers on investors and outside capital, and you're kind of shifting to, this is what I need to do to raise capital. But what I've learned being an entrepreneur myself is I should be talking to my customers daily and often and asking them hard questions so that I know why they're even buying and coming from me. So can you talk about, you know, if that's an opportunity for founders to get better at, what are some good ways to get feedback from their customers in that regard? How do you display that you know have that knowledge in the deck? And selfishly, I'd tell people that, but I'm not quite sure how that comes across when you're actually pitching to show that you have that type of relationship with your customers. I would say that it's huge, especially in technology. I use a lot of analogies and examples, but if you think about an Uber, right? Every time you order Uber Eats, they ask you to give feedback, right? And if you give anything less than four stars, they want you to tell them why. Because it is impossible for any company to continue to succeed if they're not understanding the pain points that customers are having. If customers are having issues, you need to be able to rectify them. And we talk about in software as a service, you have new business, but you also have renewals. And part of the the renewal process is making sure that you have hit on all the things that you told the customer you were going to accomplish during the the life of the contract or the statement of work. And part of the process of the renewal is, did we meet what you wanted to accomplish? Do we want to renew so we can continue to work on that? Or is there more work to be done on the things we were promised? Or if there's some feedback that you can provide us, it will allow us to become a better company and it'll allow us to better serve you. So from a software as a service point of view, feedback is really great because we're able to take that feedback and in- incorporate it into the product roadmap because the product updates that we're making are actually based on customer feedback. In general, you want to be able to get customer feedback because you want to retain these customers. It's always great to have new business, but what does that say if you have all this customer turnover? It's the same thing with employee retention. If you're always hiring all these new people, but people are leaving, hmm, what does that say about your business and the way you do business? Is that going to make more people want to continue to be attracted to your business, especially as a young company? So it's really important to get that customer feedback so that if you make a mistake, if there's something that could be fixed or improved upon, you can do it really quickly so you retain the customer. And then if the customer is telling the story of your relationship, they can say, really enjoyed working with Abraham. We have a great working relationship. He exposed me to these three things. He helped me with these five things for my business. We had one minor issue. He was able to fix it very quickly. And now that thing that I brought up, now he knows that for other customers. So he won't. It won't be repeated, right? So that is my take on customer feedback, product feedback. It's really important to allow you to continue to grow and improve and to especially retain customers, especially the customers that are high-paying customers, the high-value customers. That is super good to hear. And the way you broke that down definitely does resonate. I hadn't even thought about every time there's a transaction asking 
somebody what they thought. Um, we don't do that just across the board. I'm sure some companies are, but I think that's a nifty thing that anybody could could likely implement. So this is good. So now I want to put back on like the investor hat as you're you know kind of looking at different companies, not like who and what, but I saw a couple of things this week that are really on my mind and I'm noodling on them. I saw a post that was talking about how a company could be uninvestable if the founding team has less than 80% equity on their cap table. I've seen and heard from founders directly who, you know, expect to raise money in a long period of time. It takes a long time. And then you see Ashton Kutcher raises a bunch of money in a very short period of time. In terms of a timeline and expectations, what are you seeing on the investor side? And is it always, you know, it's going to take us some time. What would make you move quickly? Just talk about, you know, from an investor's perspective, what founders probably don't know about that side. One thing that I learned really early on is that a lot of founders are repeat founders. And so even if you have not heard of this founder, they may have had an exit into a private company that you may not have known known about and you're like why does this person keep getting funding because they have a track record of building companies that make exits and Ashton Kutcher has a track record of investing in companies that have made extremely large exits so everybody's going to put their money where they believe that they're going to get that return on investment a lot of deals um there are co-investments so there will be one venture fund that will take the first leap. And depending on that venture fund, everybody's going to want to invest alongside. And when you have a certain name on your cap table, it is fairly easy to continue to raise. So I worked with a founder who raised from Andreessen Horowitz as one of the co-investors in their seed round. And after that, People were calling them from all over saying, hey, let us know when you're raising your Series A. We'd love to invest because the name is also very important. I believe that timeline is dictated by who you know and your track record as a founder. First-time founders, emerging fund managers always have the most difficult time fundraising because no one knows what you're capable of. and I think that that is probably the real reason why the timeline for those founders is so much longer because the track record is not there yet. And I think one of the things that I've also recognized is technical founders tend to raise faster and it depends on, again, who you're connected to, who can connect you to the right person to get you what you're looking for. That is super duper helpful. And I know you could give us game for days. And But I want to shift now to a bit more of the personal. Like I said, you brought your mother here. You mentioned your family numerous times. Clearly, they've had a, a strong impact on you. As you've moved through this journey, you know, graduating from college, getting the big corporate job, getting the big tech job, getting into VC, mm-hmm. in what positive ways has this experience impacted your personal life, your family life, and vice versa? Do you see a connection? In fact, in some of the earlier episodes, we would ask if people separated them or combined them. Uh, but I'm just going to ask you, like, how has it kind of positively impacted you? Is that a safe assumption to make? And just talk a little bit about how you've been able to accrue all this experience and knowledge and still keep a family-oriented ethos. 
That's a great question. So my mom has worked in finance my entire life. And part of me transitioning into this specific asset class of venture capital is me actually being able to teach her something because she's been in retail banking. She did corporate banking. She did community banking. She's on a lot of corporate boards, but venture capital was fairly new to her. And so it was really exciting for me to be able to, to teach her something about finance. And I'm, I was not a finance major. And my dad, being an entrepreneur, being able to introduce him to a lot of the, the things that I'm learning about ways that people in his industry raise money. So I think it's been really great for me to be able to educate my family on some of the things that I'm learning in this industry. And then also learning from my brother, who is a two-time founder, of the, the challenges that he faced as a Black founder, Black co-founder, because I saw him building technology companies. I saw the ups, the downs, and kind of what I learned is that the founder journey is really difficult. And no journey is easy, but that founder journey is really difficult. And even my brother being a technical founder, co-founder, I started to understand from the venture capital side what the challenges he faced were because of. Um, So it, it allowed me to have more empathy towards that. But I will say that this has been really exciting for me because I also learned um, that when my mom was in community banking in Los Angeles, she is responsible for a lot of the um, economic development in my community. So there's a church called West Angeles on Crenshaw Boulevard, and she is the reason why they were able to open their doors because she got them the funding to be able to open their doors during the pandemic you know, how my dad was able to get funding from the city. He was also featured with Wells Fargo, who provided him with funding to be able to expand his business. And now he's in a stage where he is remodeling his business or his restaurant on Crenshaw because he's explored new avenues of funding to be able to grow, kind of modernize his restaurant. So it's been really amazing, especially just because I transitioned into venture capital into kind of startup ESG space because I wanted to have more of a social impact. I felt like I was doing pretty well in my job, but I just felt like it wasn't really making anybody's lives better. And I feel like in venture capital, um, I've been able to have a positive impact on founders, um, giving them access to, to capital and resources to be able to make their visions come alive through their businesses. And because both of my parents have their own businesses, it's really important to be able to feel like I'm doing that for other people as well. Your parents must be so proud. I love to hear that. That's such a touching story. And one might think that it's been all rosy, even though you said, saw from your brother, it's Mm -hmm. tougher than you might think. Mm -hmm. What about for you? Mm -hmm. Has there been a moment along this path and journey you know, entering the world after you walk across that Spelman stage, getting your degree, were there any low moments where you were like, you know what, maybe I should just pack this up, go in a different direction. This isn't for me. Uh, Did you ever question yourself? Talk about those low moments and how you overcame them. I faced a lot of challenges. I was an international studies major and a Spanish minor, so I did not have real technical skills. So I learned a lot on the job. And I had moments where I failed, uh, moments where I obviously did not perform in the way that I would have wanted to. And I will say that I didn't 
<clears throat> I didn't take it well as someone who is used to being a high achiever. Um, when you're not in that place, it causes you to kind of look yourself in the mirror and say, am I as great as I think I am? But it causes you to look in the mirror and realize that my whole life, I have placed the value in who I am on my productivity, my ability to be excellent and not in who I am as a person. And I think that as I have evolved in my career and I've, you know, I've had jobs where I've done really well, I've jobs when I have not done amazing. I have jobs where people have given me amazing feedback and I have jobs where I've been given critical feedback. But in my journey, it was always me saying, this is great, but something's missing. And I think especially in my venture journey and like doing all the interviews and not getting offers at certain funds or, you know, getting offers and realizing might not be a good fit and really thinking about who I am as a person. I am much more okay with making mistakes now because I realize that my value is not in my productivity and how perfect I can be in my role. It is in my intention to do the best that I can be do in that role, be the best that I can be in the role, admit when I've made a mistake and work towards not continuing to make that mistake, right? Dealing with the lows, it's inevitable. You're going to have highs and lows, but it is really being an ally to yourself and saying you are still excellent even during those low moments because you know you've had high moments. And it is really saying that your worth is not determined by the lows. It has allowed you to learn and grow and to become a better person, more resilient, and more understanding of the space that you want to fill in your career and in your life. And I think the one thing that I was just talking to my mom about as well is always want to be in a place where you feel like you have an opportunity to learn and grow and to excel around people who are going to celebrate that. No one wants to work for someone who is going to scold them, especially if it's not something that they're doing intentionally. Everybody wants to work in a place where they feel like in those low moments, you are still appreciated and we're going to work through this. Um, and I think those have been the most challenging things for me, but it has been the conversation I have with myself about, okay, you're still an excellent person and you're working towards something really great here. And you may not have found your footing just yet, but you will. That is super powerful, Alexis, especially <laughs> the shift from perfectionism to inherent and continual conversation that you are excellent. And it sounds like you also went from, let me show you what I know. Let me show you what I can do to what else can I learn? What else can I do for you? And I think that's a very powerful way of thinking about it. I'm glad you mentioned your major back mm -hmm. at Spelman uh, and a very international focus. You're not the first Spelman that I've met who's just like, yeah, I speak another language or traveling all the time. So talk to us about your travels more broadly. Uh, I know you got stories you could regale us with, but what role has that played in your ability to connect with people, not just in the U.S., but across borders? So this takes me way back because when I was in fifth grade, my teacher recommended me for people to people. I don't know if you've heard of people to people, but when I was 11 years old, I took a trip with people to people 
to Italy, Greece, and Germany, and I was gone for 21 days. So just me and my and I, it was my first passport and everything. I was completely amazed. I was blown away by the beauty of the cities, blown away by, you know, the lifestyle, you know, things that people cared about were totally different and just the culture. I grew up in a I grew up in View Park, California. It is a predominantly black neighborhood. I went to a predominantly black school. I went to a black church and it was my first time really truly interacting with people of other backgrounds. And mind you, this trip, as I learned much later in life, was pretty expensive. So I remember my mom would drive me all the way to Brentwood or um, this neighborhood right outside of UCLA. And we'd have these weekly meetings. and Everybody was like, not they, no one looked like me. I was the only black girl. And I go on the trip and I have the time of my life. And after that, I was like, I think this is something that I really like to do. In high school, I moved to New Jersey. So I spent three years in high school from 10th grade to 12th grade in New Jersey. And I traveled to Costa Rica while I was there, while I was in high school. And again, the only person who looked like me. But Costa Rica is a little bit more ethnically diverse. So you have people who look Hispanic, but people who have also the African diaspora. So that was a little bit more fun because I got a chance to see young kids who look like me, but they also spoke Spanish. So they're looking at me like, this is very interesting because you're an American and, you know, most of the Americans who come here don't look like you, right? So that was also interesting. So that's something I learned very early. And when I went off to college, I was like, okay, I don't know what I want to major in but there's an international studies major. And as much as I had traveled, because by the time I got to college, I had been to 20 countries. I was like, I think I want to do economics. No, I didn't. (laughs) I did not like economics. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back to international studies because you still have to take economics classes. And I did international development. And I remember I took this class. It was intro to um, international studies. And I tell the story a lot when I have the opportunity to, but I learned about different countries and the, like the staple product that they sell globally that allows them to have GDP, right? So in Jamaica, they were the largest importers of bananas, exporters, exporters of bananas at one point. And they had a treaty with Great Britain where Great Britain would buy at a certain price so that they would make revenue off of these bananas and they would also sell to the U.S. But all of a sudden, the U.S. was like, we don't like that. (laughs) So the U.S. bought a bunch of farmland in South America and they started growing bananas and they started selling the bananas at a fraction of the price as they did in Jamaica. and. They completely, over time, wiped out their entire business for them. Not completely, but they basically took it over. And because they were able to hire cheaper labor, they were able to buy the farms at a cheaper price. Um, They're giving these people housing, all these things. All of a sudden, Jamaica no longer has the staple product that they're selling. America had completely obliterated that, that part of their economy. 
And I told myself, well, that's not good. (laughs) But that was my first introduction to international economic development. People of all backgrounds deal with very similar things. People of darker skin tones experience the most oppression no matter what city you go to. People with more European features, no matter where you are, have better opportunities. And that is a global thing. I sat down in Mexico City with a founder, and he said that we only allow this co-founder to do investor meetings because she looks the most European out of all of us. And that was disturbing, but that is a reality that we all face. I'm not sure if that answered the question. It absolutely does. And you're spot on in how it can better inform even having conversations with other Americans because I haven't traveled to 45 countries, not even close (laughs) to it. But what I did learn from studying in the UK, which is very similar culturally to the US, but even so quite different, was that there are some things you can only learn by leaving your home country. And then when you come back, you're much more aware. I think they call it like re-entry. I remember the first time I got back after spending 10 months in the UK, as soon as we got to the airport and I just saw the level of aggressiveness at customer service and how normalized it was from the person receiving it, I'm just like, I'm back (laughs) in America. Uh, But I think that's spot on in how you're able to help people to kind of take a step back, get some altitude on the issues and problems. This has been a great conversation, Alexis, really has. You have uh, given us more than we ever could have asked for from you, so we appreciate that. Uh, For these final few questions, uh, you might have answered this in a number of your responses to this in this conversation. What is the most valuable thing that you feel like you do for founders who are either entering portfolios for funds that you're working with or in your mentorship capacity? What would you say is the most valuable thing that you do for those folks? Tell them the things that no one else will tell them. I remember I went to a happy hour that I actually hosted with a few folks from Spelman and Morehouse. And one of the things that the investor advised us to do was, as we're working with founders who look like us, women, underrepresented founders, they're going into these meetings and they're getting these same blanket responses. You're too early. We're already investing in somebody else who's just like you. Where are your financials? All these things. But what does that actually mean? Right? And so what I am really trying to focus on is really sharing the things that are actually going to be shift in the reason why you do or do not get an investment or you do or do not have an investor interested in you. The thing that could be the most helpful is being brutally honest with, with some founders and really letting them know what are the blockers that you see that are preventing them from getting to the next stage in their business, whether that's customer acquisition, building revenue, whether that is meeting new investors, whether that is hiring new people. All of those things are things that we as in, as mentors, as people in venture capital, need to be able to feel comfortable doing so that founders are ready when they need to get that next investment. Love that. And that is too real, telling them things, because that's hard. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to be the bearer of bad news. And most people try to avoid that, but it's it's helpful to actually get that from somebody who can deliver it like you have to us for this past uh, hour or so. 
so the last question is how can people get in touch with you if you've been listening to this right now and you're like, hey, wow, where did Alexis come from? Or I've been meaning to get in touch with her for a minute. And now that we've had like this long conversation, mm -hmm. um, I actually want to make good on those efforts. Uh, mm -hmm. What is the best way to do it? What is the best way, not just place, but format? Mm -hmm. Like what are some good ways that they could get in your good graces to respond? Fortunately and unfortunately, I respond to everyone. So we may not actually have a meeting, but I respond to everyone because I know how it feels to not get responded to. And I feel like that is not right. Not everyone knows what you know. Not everyone is privy to what the etiquette is. But if I can educate you on that, I can tell you. And I'm fine with doing that. Um, but you can reach me on LinkedIn. Connect with me, Alexis Stewart, and we can go from there. If there's a fit, I can send you my Calendly link, but let's start with LinkedIn. That sounds good. A clear system. I can vibe with that, and I think it's awesome that you respond to folks. Uh, people have different views on that. I'm in your camp as well. I think you should reply. Even when people see me like the congratulations, I'll at least say thanks. I know yeah. that's kind of weird, but you know, I, it's, it's a good yeah. habit. It's, you know, I don't know this... Our generation is very different in that everyone wants to feel like they are uh, the main character, and I'm not like that. So, well, it's much appreciated. And like I said, this has been a phenomenal conversation. It really has to go deep in a lot of different ways and to get to know you better because I think it's awesome that you've had your journey from, you know, starting off people to people. Now look at you. <laughs> uh, all of that uh, has been very good to, to watch. So, like I said, thank you, but we want you to have the last word. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate being able to tell my story and talk about something that I have grown a very deep passion for, which is venture capital and being a connector in the industry. I believe that we have a lot of critical issues in our community that can be solved through technology. I believe that there are a lot of emerging fund managers out there who are investing in really amazing technology. And uh, Goody Nation is one of the organizations that's doing a great job of connecting founders to those investors. I believe that we as a community have the power to be able to work together to solve these critical issues by pooling together all of our resources through social capital and capital. And I'm just really passionate about seeing our underserved and underrepresented founders really getting the opportunity to showcase the talent and the technology that we are building to solve very critical problems in this industry. Love that. And this is why we do what we do. So thank you. And until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.